I want to invite everybody to open their Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Back in Genesis today, and actually we're going to cover quite a bit of ground today. Uh, we're going to be uh, in Genesis chapter 6 all the way to chapter 9. I have two questions for you today. Um, the first is, do you know the name Jeff Bezos? All right, he's kind of a household name. Uh, he's the founder of Amazon. And did you know that uh, Jeff Bezos actually started Amazon as a bookstore? And that he started this bookstore from his garage? Kind of a rags to riches kind of thing. I, I don't know. He was a hedge fund, hedge fund manager, so he may not have that, had that many rags. But his, his parents actually provided the initial startup costs from their own personal savings. Uh, and uh, he began selling books out of his garage. Fast forward 28 years later. And Jeff Bezos owns one of the world's biggest yachts worth $500 million. $500 million on a boat. And that's probably not even the only one that he owns. And that yacht is only 0.26% of his net worth. 0.26%. Like less than half of 1% of his whole net worth. With 0.26 of my net worth, I could buy a really nice steak dinner and probably half a movie. But the richest man in the world title goes to Elon Musk. You guys know Elon Musk? He is the founder, well I don't know if he's the founder, but he's the CEO of Tesla. While Jeff Bezos is worth $189 billion, okay, $189 billion, Elon Musk is worth a whopping $287 billion. Let's talk about a billion because that just rolls off our tongue so simply. It's like, oh yeah, that's one step above a million, no big deal. Say you have $1 million in cash. And guys, I had a really great um, uh, prop prepared for you this morning, but John had trouble withdrawing the $1 million from his ATM. It was, it didn't have that many $1 bills in it, so... Um, Sorry, John, you know, sorry, John says sorry to everybody. But one, one million dollars stacks to 4,300 inches, which is about as tall as a 30 story building. How, how big is that building, that ugly building, Plaza Tower? You guys know what I'm talking about in the middle of Springfield? A million dollars is like higher than that, right? That's not quite 30 stories. All right. A stack of one billion dollars is 127 times taller than the tallest building on the planet. That building is in Dubai at 163 floors. And a billion dollars is that times 127. One dollar bills stacked up. It's 345,694 feet. And Elon Musk has 287 of those. Guys, that's enough $1 bills to almost circle the earth at the equator. It's definitely enough to circle it up at the poles. A lot of money. Some time ago, Elon Musk tweeted about a very simple scientific fact, a fact that's true. And that fact was about how when we humans feel emotions, a certain part of our brain triggers a chemical response. Right, so like joy and dopamine, that kind of stuff, love. In his tweet about this, Elon Musk said, 
We are literally a brain in a vat. The vat is your skull. Everything you think is real is an electrical signal. Feels so real, though. In other words, everything we feel, what he's saying, like love or joy or sadness, are just electrical impulses from our brains. All we are are blips of organic matter on a radar that doesn't care or give us any meaning. This is precisely why judgment matters. If there is no judgment, Elon Musk is right. If there is no judgment, nothing matters. But if there is judgment, everything matters. And if Noah and the flood teaches us anything, it's that God judges. Christianity 101. When Moses wrote Genesis, his first audience would have been the Israelites in the wilderness. And if they should have asked one question, it should have been, does God still judge? The answer, of course, is yes. And if God judges, not only does that make everything we do matters, but it also makes $287 billion not matter that much at all. And last week when we were in Job, it was actually a pretty fitting part of this, or fitting introduction for this part of Genesis because not only does God judge, but God preserves the right to judge anybody and all as He sees fit. He's not restricted to our complaints or to our good deeds or to whatever. He's restricted only to His own prerogative as judge, which is to say an infinite prerogative. He is God, and we are not. And if this God truly holds the right to judge us, then He is our only hope for any other kind of outcome. And these chapters are going to show us precisely that. So we're not going to read all of chapter 6 through 9. I'm going to read uh, chapter 6, but then give an overview. Alright, so let's start reading in, in chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And as we, if you continue reading, he, Noah and his family go into the ark. God shuts the door and it begins to rain. And it rains and it rains and it rains until the whole earth is covered with water. And everything perishes and dies. And eventually the waters begin to recede and, and Noah's uh, ark lands on the top of a mountain and he sends out birds uh, seven week, days apart until eventually uh, a bird flies off and doesn't come back because it's found a home. And afterward, um, God makes and establishes his covenant with Noah. All right, we're all familiar with this story, but that's the rundown of chapters 6 to 9. And the first thing that we see is that God desires an end to sin. God desires an end to sin. Obviously, in, in chapter 6, there's a lot to dissect. I mean, in this chapter alone, much less chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9. But the, the major idea that should have jumped out to us is the absolute corruption of man. And, and chapter or 6, verse 5 has the, the, that theme verse there. We read God's assessment there. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, humanity is, is completely corrupted by sin at this point, which is a, a sharp turn of events from just a few chapters ago. Completely corrupted. And the, the words that are used is, is not just corruption, but, but violence. Right? It's, it's a societal violence that's being done to one another. Charles Colson once wrote that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. This is where we get the, the doctrine of, of total depravity. It's not that we need a little help getting out. God just needs to reach out His hand and pull us out of the mud. It's that we are totally bankrupt. And, and to throw human corruption into relief, like to show us how stark this is, we're told a little bit of background, and it's really strange. We're, 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 we're told about these sons of God who, who come down, who, or, who sleep with these women, 
And we're told about these other people called the Nephilim. Now, we don't have time to get into the ins and outs of this passage, and there's a lot of debate that, that goes on around it. But, but it's my interpretation that sons of God refers to angelic beings. Mainly because sons of God refers continuously and exclusively to angelic beings throughout the Old Testament. Okay, so it's these, these fallen angelic beings that, that come down and sleep with women. And, and furthermore, he meant, Moses mentions these Nephilim, who are probably seen as like these mythical beings, right? We, like he mentions them in passing, but they're probably seen like kind of how we see Hercules, like strong, mighty, mythological beings. But Genesis shows us that their or, origin's not divine, it's just human, right? They're just regular humans. But in any case, the flood doesn't happen because of those things. Right? That's the point. The flood's not happening because of this. The flood happens because of humans. Because of the problem of humans. Humanity has become so wicked that God doesn't flood the earth because of angelic beings, but because of human corruption. And the Lord regretted. What did He regret? that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. When the Bible speaks of God's regret, it doesn't mean he feels he made a mistake. Uh, This whole thing was a big mistake and I, I shouldn't have done it in the first place. Instead, it refers to God's heart and his consistent opposition to corruption and wickedness. In other words, God is moved by injustice. Even though He knows it's going to happen for thousands of years in advance, when it does happen, He's still moved by it. Stephen Dempster wrote, the root of this word, regret, is associated with the pain of the fall and shows that God is not a detached, dispassionate being, but one deeply moved and affected by human fallen. So what can God do? Can He look the other way? Can He just pretend it's not happening? Can He sweep it under the rug and say it's okay? We'll do better. No. God must judge sin. And to judge it for justice's sake. After Amber Geiger shot Botham Jean in his apartment, uh, you guys remember that uh, policewoman walks into an apartment not her own, shoots in the dark, kills Botham Jean, uh, and and uh, Botham Jean's brother Brant during the trial uh, walks down from his podium and gives Amber a hug, and he forgives her. And apparently, he's a practicing Christian, and it's a really beautiful moment. But but Amber Geiger still had to go to jail. Like, she still had to pay for her crimes. It would have been wrong, even if at that point the judge said, oh, it's okay, let's just let it slide. Justice in that moment still needs to be satisfied. Sin is a grave injustice against a holy and pure God. And it would be wrong for God to just let sin slide. God would be wrong, and He wouldn't be God. The question isn't, how can a loving God judge people? 
The question is, how can a holy God love sinners and forgive sin? That's the impossible question. And so God gives humanity exactly what we ask for. He judges them with the flood by covering the earth with water. Remember, Moses is writing this to the Israelites in the wilderness. And the Israelites who read this would know without a doubt that God hates sin and that He still judges sin. Because just as those who rebelled against Him in Noah's days were destroyed by water, they were witness to the Egyptians who rebelled against God who were also destroyed by water. The Red Sea. God's judgment all over again against those who are in opposition to God and His people. So yeah, bell should be going off. God judges still. Sin is a blight on a good creation. It, sin is the corruption of good. It, it twists it twists good for its own selfish purposes. Sin is the rebellion and rejection of all that makes God good and holy. God is a being of integrity. Sin makes us hypocrites. Every single one of us in this room is a hypocrite to some degree. God is a being of faithfulness. Sin makes us adulterers. God is a being of truth. Sin makes us love falsehood. And this sin corrupts every part of who we are. There's not, there's not a part of who you are that is not touched and tainted with sin. And will God judge sin? Absolutely. And He has every right to judge you and to judge any and everybody on earth as He sovereignly wills. That's what the flood teaches us. But God not only desires an end to sin, He wants to end it through a new kind of people. Point two, God plans a new humanity. There is one person and only one who stands out amidst a population of corruption. This guy named Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of God through his relationship with God, right? Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So you see how Noah's obedience goes hand in hand with his relationship with God. Peter Gentry remarked that Noah's action toward God and toward his fellow man were based on faithfulness and loyalty to his relationship with God. So, so God, in, in these chapters, He not only wants to judge and make an end of sin, but He also wants to make a restart with Noah. In fact, uh, God wants to recreate altogether. So the whole flood narrative is actually a mirror of Genesis 1. And just as the waters covered creation in Genesis 1, so now in Genesis 7, the waters again cover creation. Just as the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 and prepared the chaos for creation, so too the wind, same word as Spirit, 
blows over the waters, the chaotic waters that cover creation. And just as God gathers the waters together for dry land in Genesis 1, so was dry land the first to appear from out of the waters. This new beginning, in other words, just like the very beginning, God is doing a work of recreation. A new creation. Hey, and guys, listen, this is really cool. I, I This is, is symbolic for a recreation, but I think God also physically recreated the earth during this time too. Right? So, like, through the flood and because of the flood, I believe this is where we likely have the separation of Pangaea, right? And, and the formation of modern mountains and, and even deep places like the Grand Canyon. Like, I believe God was at work underneath the waters. And that the earth as we now know it is different from what it was before the flood. Because He's God. And He can do that. It's easy, right? If you believe in God. But that's, that's not even the important point. God is making a new start with a new Adam. Noah. Noah in this story is, is depicted as this new Adam. This guy in this relationship with God expected to start a new humanity. And through his relationship with Noah, God tells Noah exactly what he's going to do. Listen, God does not keep his covenant partners in secret. God speaks to in relationship with his covenant partners and tells them what he's going to do. And he tells Noah also what he can do about it. He commands Noah to, to build the ark. And so just as God covers the earth with water, God graciously covers Noah and his family with the ark. So God is working to recreate and preserve humanity to make it a new kind of humanity through Noah. Things are bleak but looking good, right? Except that immediately after the flood, our hopes are tempered. And, and I'm not even talking about that, if you know what I'm thinking of. I'm talking about actually chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, Noah does something really good. He builds an altar and he sacrifices to God. He's worshiping God. What a great start! And then in chapter 8, verse 21, when God smells the pleasing aroma, He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So right now, even before Noah does anything else, God, despite God wiping out all corruption on earth, corruption still lives in the heart of man. A guy named William Dumbrell wrote, that the reference to the heart of man in 821, which remains unchanged by the experience of the flood, refers initially to the eight who have been saved and thus throws into clear relief the nature of Noah's righteousness as something extrinsic to him. Since we are virtually being told that a flood would be an appropriate response by God to the sin of any age, mankind has been preserved by grace alone. Until the end of time, the continued existence of the created order will thus be grounded simply in the gracious nature of God's character. 
even though God judges and sin in every person because every person is corrupted by sin, He provides a new start by grace. There's a church uh, near the gym that I go to and their church signs are always ridiculous, but one says, um, it might still even say it, it says, we believe in second chances. This is not about second chances. Right at the beginning of the Bible, we have a clear example of a second chance given to humanity and we blow it. I don't want a second chance. I've been given my second chance and I blew it. I I messed it up already. I, I don't need a second chance. I need a completely new nature. And by God's grace, He still plans a new humanity, which leads to our third point. God provides a way of escape. If you're an Israelite, you're hearing this story, and, and you should be asking questions. The one big one, will God also judge us like this? Or, or like the Egyptians? The answer is yes, but it also depends on your answer to another question. Is mankind still corrupt? You see, the Israelites ended up discounting God's judgment because they discounted their own corruption. They assumed uh, that they were different from the rest of the world because they were part of Israel. We're not corrupt like the rest of the world. If you know the story of the Israelites, you know how wrong they were to assume that. we must be sure that we simply do not just assume we're not under judgment. We can't just assume it. Don't assume just because you called yourself a Christian your whole life, you're not under judgment. Don't assume just because you go to church, you're not under judgment. Don't assume just because you prayed a prayer or got baptized that you won't be judged. Judged. I once assumed that because God called me into ministry that my sin was different and I could sin freely without judgment. That's bankrupt thinking. Listen, you know who would love it if you never seriously contemplated your own corruption? The devil. He would love it if you never seriously thought about your own sinful corruption because you'll never be driven in despair to ask, how can I be saved? The answer is not to look at what you can do. It's not to say, I'm not that bad. The answer is to look for what God has provided. And that's exactly what this narrative shows us. God not only provides the ark for Noah and his family, but He also provides at the end in chapter 9, a new covenant. And, and the wording of this covenant in chapter 9, just like going back to Genesis 1 and 2 again, it's identical. Right? In Genesis chapter 2, 
and says at the beginning of chapter 9 here, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same language, but is now modified for life in a fallen world. Listen to what God says in, in chapter 9. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, what God is doing is he's providing meat for our sustenance, which, great, right? But he's also, uh, he's also providing a sentence for murder, right? This is where we derive our modern uh, conception of capital punishment. Precisely because human life is so precious. We hope that Something like capital punishment deters murder, and we hope that it leads to a change in them, but we do it because the image of God is precious, and there needs to be an accounting. In this, this covenant, right, it not only defines this relationship, but it defines our role in it. Okay, if you're married and you are faithless in marriage, you should not expect to enjoy the fruits of marriage. In the same way, if you want God, but live the way you want to, you can expect God's blessing. In other words, our obligation in a relationship with God is to repent. The Christian life is not just one where we, we repent once. Like a long time ago, I prayed a prayer and, and repented. No, the, the Christian life is one where we repent daily. Daily turning from our corrupted hearts and, and sin and disobedience to God. So yeah, we do have an obligation in our relationship with God. But here's the thing. Our repentance is not enough to save us. It's a mistake to think that you can repent enough to make God love you or make God save you. It's a repentance through faith. Faith in what? This covenant in chapter 9, it, it starts with our obligation, but it doesn't end there. It ends with a sign. God gives Noah and the rest of creation the sign of a rainbow. God says in, in chapter 9, verse 12, and God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters never again shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. Here's the interesting thing. In Hebrew, there's not a word for rainbow. 
They didn't have a word for rainbow like we do. Instead, the word that's used here is that of an archer's bow that's, that he would use in war. So in effect, God hangs up his bow as a warrior who has ceased from his fighting. William Austin Gage wrote beautifully of this. The bow is a weapon of war, an emblem of wrath. God will now set it in the heavens as a token of grace. The Lord who makes his bow of wrath into a seven-colored arch of beauty to ornament the heavens is the one who will finally command the nations to beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. For the Prince of Peace takes pleasure in mercy and the righteous judge delights in grace. God sovereignly and graciously ceases from His wrath. But listen, God doesn't just cease His wrath. He directs it elsewhere. The bow that He sets in the heavens doesn't point down to earth, does it? The bow always points upward right into the heart of God. God's way of escape from His wrath will come when He directs His wrath toward Himself and His Son on the cross. And even though humans have obligation in the covenant, the human partner always fails. Every covenant God put conditions on it and says, if you do this, this will happen. But there is not one single faithful human partner. Right after this Beautiful moment between God and Noah. Noah plants a vineyard and gets so drunk that he passes out naked on the floor. And his son Japheth walks in, or Ham, sorry. And everything is, is messed up already. And, and in, in Sunday school, like it's a Sunday school lesson, right? Be like Noah, be like David. And, and that's not a bad lesson. But if I'm honest, I don't want to be like Noah. I I need something better than Noah. I need someone who's going to keep this covenant for me. who, Who covers me when I fail. Because all I can do, because my sin is corrupted, is earn God's wrath and fail my end of the covenant. That's all I can do. I read about these sinners who perished in the flood and the Egyptians who were destroyed by the Red Sea and think that's... That's me. I I don't belong among the people of God. But God provides cover for us just as He provides cover for Noah. God commanded Noah, retreat into the ark, and God shouts at us, retreat into Christ. It is in Christ that God makes an end to sin. It is in Christ that God makes a new humanity. It is in Christ that God makes a way of escape. Christ is our ark who covers us from the wrath we deserve by absorbing it Himself. This is God's solution. Christ is the one to whom the rainbow points. Christ is the one that we retreat to. We are corrupted by sin. And even after we run to Christ, our sin shows up day in and day out, constantly, all day, every day. We need retreat 
And God has provided that for us in Christ. And listen, if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, you are under God's wrath. Today is the day that you run to Christ and repent and trust in Him. And for Christians, and for Christians, our response is to repent of all the things that we do that should earn God's wrath and trust the fact that His solution for us, His ark, His Christ, is enough. Not our good works, not our faithfulness, not our praying. Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father God, we are faithless covenant partners. And as soon as You show us favor, as soon as, Lord, You work something good in our lives, we turn around and and curse You with sin. How easily and how quickly and how readily readily do we provoke You to righteous wrath. You would be right and You would be good to judge us for an eternity in hell apart from You. We are faithless, but You provide a way of rescue. A Christ who is enough for us to save us from wrath, to save us from sin. And You are faithful to us, not because of any faithfulness on our part. You're faithful to us because Christ was faithful for us. And so that in Christ, You don't see us as ever having gone astray, as ever having backslidden, and ever has sinned. You see us as fully, perfectly faithful to You. And God, because of that, because Christ was faithful for us, work in us that we would be faithful to You. That we would not give way to our corrupt hearts. But that every day we would strive by Your grace to be faithful to You. And God, we know that a judgment is coming. It could be during this prayer. It could be as we eat lunch. It could be this week. It is your right and your timing. God, I pray that in light of your judgment, we would seek all that we can to come into Christ with us, to come into the ark, to be saved from your righteous wrath against sin, against violence and corruption. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.